And if you need a Bible, you can just lift up your hand and the ushers will uh, make sure that they drop one off to you so that you can follow along with us in our study. I also want to say, um, I, I know that that uh, some of you, you know, you really like it when uh, we're in a passage if we just stay there, you know. Um, but in, in Revelation, that's a little bit difficult because, you know, really the, the only way that we can interpret the Bible is with the Bible. And the book of Revelation is filled with pictures and symbols and uh, things that the only way to understand what they mean is to look at other scripture. So we're going to leave a lot. We, we just are. As we go through the book of Revelation, we're going to have to look at a lot of other verses and whatnot. So, um, you know, I, I hope that they'll always be at least up on the screen if you're not fast enough to turn there. And uh, I encourage you to take notes and write these things down um, because I know you don't want me to just make stuff up, you know. Uh, oh, yeah, this means, uh, you know, whatever. But uh, so just kind of bear with me in this and, and uh, you know, when we study another book, we'll stay in that book. But tonight we're in Revelation. We're going to take the rest of chapter 4. We took the very beginning of it last week and we'll finish that chapter tonight. The book of Revelation, I'll admit, is very intimidating. However, it's not a very hard book to understand when you just take it as it's given to us. Again, the outline of the book is recorded for us in chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus tells John to write the things which were, past tense, the things which are, presently, and the things which shall be, hereafter. And so, chapter 1, the things which were, Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, and glorified. Chapters 2 and 3, the things which are, Seven letters to seven churches because John was presently in the church age at the time when Jesus gave to him the revelation. So the things which are is the church age, the time that we still find ourselves in now at the very tail end of. And then the third section of the book of Revelation, which we started last week, from chapters four all the way through the end of the book, the things which shall be after this, metatauta in the Greek, after what? After church history, after the church age is complete, the things that will happen after that are recorded for us in chapters 4 through the end of the book. Now, last week, we looked at, you know, what happens after this. John begins chapter 4 by saying, After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must be hereafter, or after these, if you would, literally. And last week we talked about this event called the rapture. The event that marks the end of the church age when Jesus comes and he calls together his faithful to meet him in the air and to then go with him and, and be with him in glory in heaven while the tribulation unfolds on planet earth. That is seven years of judgment and the wrath of God being poured out on a Christ 
rejecting sinful world. So we looked at the rapture and and that event that takes place right there in in verse 1 of chapter 4. And many of us, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know a little bit about the rapture. You at least know what it is and, and maybe you're developing more understanding into the kind of the mechanics of how it works and when and all of that. But the question that's often neglected is what happens after the rapture? You know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, a little kid who makes like a bike ramp, you know, and just puts a piece of plywood up, uh, you know, on a couple of cinder blocks and, and then gears up. And, and then someone asks the child, what are you going to do? And they say, well, I'm going to ride down and I'm going to at full speed just launch off that. And then you say, well, what are you going to do then? They say, I don't know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> go to the hospital, you know. But, you know, a lot of people, we understand the rapture. We're geared up. We're ready to go. You know, we got our foot on the pedal and we're ready to launch. But what happens then? What happens after the trumpet sounds and that moment of time we're translated and we meet the Lord in the air? What then? Well, remember those choose your own adventure books? Remember how, you know, you would get to the end of a a chapter and it would say, if you want to, you know, jump, turn to page 80. If you don't want to jump, turn to page 50. Remember those books? Well, that's kind of similar to the answer to this question. See, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the answer to that question, what happens after the rapture, you just read on here in chapter 4. But if you don't believe in Jesus, you are dismissed, and you can come back when we get to chapter 6. Because for you, that's what happens after the rapture. Everything that starts in chapter 6 and then goes on all the way through chapter 19. But for those of you that do believe that you've given your lives to Christ and you're trusting Him for your salvation, not leaning upon your own goodness or your own righteousness or your religious deeds, but you've trusted Christ, for us, what will happen after the rapture? Well, John goes on here in chapter 4, and he answers some of these things for us. What's going to happen to those that are raptured? Now, the answer is, of course, in chapters 4 and 5. And I want you to understand that these two chapters go together. We don't have time to go through both of them tonight. You know, but kind of chapter 4 sets the stage for us. It gives to us insight and sets the stage. But then in chapter 5, the drama begins and we see kind of the events that happen heavenly. What happens on God's thing? Chapter 4 deals more with us. What's gonna, what are we going to experience uh, after the moment that we are going to be raptured? Now, just so you know where we're going with this study... I'm going to give to you uh, four, maybe five points, I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, of things that we're going to experience, and I'm going to explain them very briefly as we move through the text, and then at the end of the study, I'm going to apply them. So if it seems like I'm just giving you a lot of nuts and bolts in the first part of our study, it's because I'm just explaining to you these things, but I will come back and then apply them at the end, just so that you understand. Well, what is it that we are going to experience, those of us that believe, right after the rapture takes place? Well, the first thing, biblically, and what John experiences here, and if you're taking note, is personal account. Personal account. If 
I could ask you to look again with me at verse 2. John writes and he says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. John tells us that he sees a throne and that there is one who is seated upon it. Now when we get to chapter 20 of Revelation in about three weeks. Just kidding. We're going to see another throne there in chapter 20. It's a throne that's called the Great White Throne. And that is not this throne that we see here that God is sitting upon there in heaven. The Great White Throne that we read of in chapter 20 is a total different scene. It's where the unsaved, unredeemed dead will be judged according to their works and no one who stands before the great white throne gets in we'll see that when we get there but that is not the throne that john sees here that the lord is sitting upon in verse 2 so what is it most likely this throne refers to what paul called when he wrote to the corinthians the judgment seat of christ The church in in Corinth, in many ways, and and many of you know this, they were the the most messed up church in all of the New Testament. The the letters that were written to the Corinthians were the longest, and they had the most issues going on in them. Constant problems. You know, people getting drunk at the communion suppers, and just all kinds of craziness going on in the Corinthian congregation. But Paul was addressing uh, them and, and talking to them about what happens to the believer once they die or they're raptured. When they are, in a sense, he says, absent from the body. And he says this to them in chapter 5, verse 10. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he hath done, whether it be good or or bad. Now the word judgment, when Paul says that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, in the Greek it's the word bima, B-E-M-A. And the bima seat was the place where Olympians, athletes, you know, competitors would receive their crowns and their wreaths for what they accomplished in their uh, athletics. You know, so you can picture if you ever watch the Olympics, they have the stand and, you know, the, the one in the middle is the first place and it's the highest. And then the second place is just to the left or right of it and it's a little bit lower. And then the third place is just under that. And that's, that's more or less the Bema seat that Paul is talking about. It's the, the place of judgment where you receive for what you did with your time on earth. And he tells us whether it be good or bad. Interesting. It's not a place, and and mark this, hear this, understand this, that the Bema seat is not a place where sin is judged. Because our sin, the sin of the believer, has been laid completely upon Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west, and that he remembers them no more. By his stripes, the Bible says, we are healed. And the words of Christ from the cross are, it is finished, to tell us die. Paid in full. 
And our sins are covered. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works. Lest any man should boast. Our sin, the sin issue is gone and done away with. And yet nevertheless we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. To receive rewards or to suffer loss. Based upon what we did with our time and how we were stewards over our resources and that which God entrusted to us for our time here upon the earth. All sin is put away, but the Bema Seat is a place of reward or a place of loss. Now Paul further explains this Bema Seat judgment and how it will work in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And from verse 9 and on, he says this. He says, for we are laborers together with God. Isn't that a privilege? I mean, to think that here we are, we're yoked with the Lord in his service and we get to serve alongside of him. He says, you are God's husbandry. You are God's building. And according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, he's saying, listen, we are laborers together with God. And each of us has been given a set of tools and a set of gifts and the ability now to serve Christ with our energy, with our gifts, with our resources. But he warns us saying, take Heed or be careful how you go about doing this. How you conduct yourself in the service for Christ in the time that you're on earth. Why? He answers in verse 12. He says, now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it. That is the light. The day in the Bible speaks of the light. And the fire. So notice those two things. The day, which is the light, and the fire. The day, the light, and the fire shall try or test every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide or survive the light and the fire... He shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved. Understand that, that this is not a sin issue. It isn't a matter of salvation versus condemnation. It is a matter of rewards versus loss. He himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So Paul explains that at this Bema Seat judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, all will be saved. Yet some will receive reward based on how they labored and built, what they did with their time, with their lives, with their bodies. And others will suffer loss. Well, wait a minute. How do we know that this is the throne that John sees here in Revelation chapter 4? Well, notice again right there in verse 3. That as uh, John writes, he says that he that sat upon the throne was to look upon (coughs) like a jasper and a sardine stone. Now, the jasper stone is most likely a diamond. It refers to a diamond. 
And its essence was clear white light. That, that if you, you know, kind of look at a diamond, it's, it's perfectly crystal clear. And, and it's radiant in its eminence and the light that it emanates. But then he goes on from there and he says also a sardine stone. And the sardine stone was a fiery red jewel. So what do we see as John looks at this one who's seated upon the throne? He sees light and he sees fire. The very same things that Paul the Apostle says would try every man's work. The day shall declare it and the fire will prove every man's work to see what sort it is. If it survives the light and the fire, he will have a reward. But if it's burned up and consumed, then he will suffer loss. He will be saved. And it's interesting, isn't it, that what's the third thing that John sees as he describes this throne is a rainbow. He says there there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. For you Bible students, what is the rainbow a symbol of in the Bible? No, grace. Grace. God said that he put his bow in the clouds and it would be forever a sign to him that he would never again judge the world by water. And it becomes an emblem of grace, of mercy, that God will be gracious. And isn't it interesting that Paul said that he himself shall be saved? A perfect picture of the grace of God. Isn't it great that even in judgment, Habakkuk said, God, in wrath, remember mercy. And isn't it great that we serve a God of grace? And so here we see personal account. When we realize what we deserve, and then we see in place of what we deserve, what we get, what an incredible time that's going to be as we give account before the Lord for the things that we did in the body. It's interesting, what we do, what you do with your time and with your body makes a difference in your eternity. Understand that. The first thing that will happen after the rapture of the church is that you will stand before Jesus. Not with your church, not with your wife, not with your kids, but it will be you and Jesus. And he will say, talk to me. Or maybe he won't. Maybe he'll just look at you. You know, I don't know. But it will be you and the Lord. It will be a time where we give personal account for the things that we did on earth. The second thing that will take place right after the rapture, and we see it right here in the text, is that positions will be assigned. Now, the rewards that we receive, that Paul spoke of when he said that that we will either be rewarded or suffer loss, the rewards that we receive will in some way determine or reflect upon our positions, our responsibility, and our capacity to enjoy heaven in some way. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus illustrated this truth with uh, this parable. Luke chapter 19 in verse 11. He said these words. It says, and as they heard these things, he added and he spoke a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. And he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and he delivered them ten pounds or ten units of money or currency And he said unto them, Occupy until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. 
And it came to pass that when he was returned, (coughs) having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. So we see in this passage a, a, a parable that Jesus is telling about the personal account that each of us will give. And then he says that then came the first saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained 10 pounds. I've taken the 10 that you gave me and I turned it into 20. And he said unto him, well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, have thou authority over, listen, 10 cities. And the second came, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. And came another saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. And you can read on and find out what happens to that guy. You don't want to be him. But notice how Jesus illustrates that, that what we do and the fruit that we bear with the resources that we've received from him on earth will translate into a position or responsibility when we are in heaven. Many people think that in heaven, you know, we, we, first thing that happens is that you're assigned a harp. And the second thing, you're assigned a cloud. And this will be your harp and your cloud. And for all of eternity, you will get very good at str- strumming, you know, and, and all the rest. But no, heaven, there, I don't know exactly how it works, but I know that it's far beyond anything that this earth could ever produce. And that the responsibilities and the capacity that we'll have there to operate in it is going to be incredible. And that the rewards that we receive based on the account that we give will translate then into positions we receive and responsibility that we have in heaven. In the seven letters to the churches that we looked at uh, just over the past few weeks, Jesus closed each one of those seven letters with an eternally motivating charge. To Smyrna, he said that if you are faithful, I will give to you a crown of life. To Thyatira, he told them if they overcame, that he would give them power over the nations and that they would rule them with a rod of iron. To them, he promised authority. To Sardis, he said to the overcomers that they would be clothed in white raiment, that they would be covered. And to Laodicea, to the overcomers, he said that he would grant it to them to sit with him in his throne. So he kind of reiterated the very things that we're talking about, saying that if you do well, if you use your time and your resources, if you serve Christ and you bear fruit and you lead fruitful lives, then there will be rewards that will translate into positions and capacities in heaven to those that are faithful. So the Bible gives to us an indication of what the rewards and the crowns represent and mean as we read about them in Scripture. Are you with me? Now, what do we see here in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 4? Notice this. John says that round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats, I saw four and twenty elders sitting. Listen. Listen clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. 
So what we see here are 24 elders sitting with the Lord in 24 thrones that are clothed in white raiment and that are wearing crowns of gold. So no doubt by this time, by the time we get to verse 4 of chapter 4, account has been given and positions have been assigned. The place where people will rule and reign with Christ and what they will be doing will have already taken place by the time you get to verse 4 of chapter 4. And we see that here. Now, why 24 elders? What's the significance of the number 24 and, you know, there being these 24 thrones? And, And I have to tell you, I don't really know for sure. I know that Jesus told the 12 apostles that they would be seated on 12 thrones sitting with him. We know that later on in the book of Revelation, when the new Jerusalem is presented, that the names of the 12 tribes and of the 12 apostles are in the foundations and also in the gates. So could this be the 12 apostles and maybe the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel? It's possible. We don't know who they are. You know, but, but basically, the, the, the place of elders in the Bible, whether it's in the Old Testament through Israel's history, or whether it's in the New Testament in the context of the church, elders are always representatives of the whole. You know, they, they are representatives for those you know, to whom they are overseeing in that sense. And the same thing is true here. These 24 elders represent the presence of all of the redeemed that have been gathered by this time and are brought. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 5, we're going to see all of the you know, multitude of those who, who they are representing. You know, the multitudes of uh, families and tribes and tongues uh, of, and nations. You know, so we see these guys. Who are they? We don't know. But what do they represent? They represent the whole of the redeemed that are there in heaven. So, personal account... Positions will be awarded and received to those that are faithful. And then John goes on to say in verse 5 that out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, I don't know exactly what this is. I can't, you know, point to, uh, you know, specific scripture or draw reference and say, well, this is what this means. I, I don't, honestly, I just don't know exactly what this means. But I'll give you two suggestions and you can take your pick. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel sees a very similar scene to what John is experiencing here. It's one of those chapters that will... Excuse me, blow your mind when you read about the things that Ezekiel saw when a vision of the heavens was open before him. And, And he sees beasts similar to the ones that John is about to describe. And he goes into much more detail in describing them. And he talks about how their movement. And how they responded to, you know, the one who was sending them. And, and, and he talks about how it, it, they, they moved as flashes of lightning and that there was thunderings. And very similar to what John says here. <coughs> and some have, some have suggested that this is just kind of a, a symbol of God's commands being carried out on planet earth. That, that, that in heaven, it's heard and understood as lightnings and thunderings and voices, but that all of these things have a connection to things that are happening on, on planet Earth at a certain time. 
that angelic movement, God's commands being carried out, that all of those things happen at the speed of light and at the speed of thought. Others have suggested that this rumbling uh, that we read about here in verse 5 is in preparation for what's coming in chapter 6. You know how on a kind of, you know, like a normal summer day when all of a sudden the, uh, you know, the sky begins to get dark on the horizon and there begins to be the small flashes of light and the distant rumbles of thunder that you begin to hear and it's an indication that there's a storm coming. And and let me tell you, by the time we get to chapter 6, there's a storm that comes upon planet Earth. And some have pointed out and suggested that these sounds that John hears, these flashes of light that he sees, are an indication of what's about to take place. And all of what happens in these chapters is leading up to the events that will take place beginning in chapter 6. John records for us what he saw. He doesn't tell us exactly what it means. (coughs) But what's the third thing that we will experience as we're in heaven raptured before the Lord? It's in verse 6. And if you're taking notes, perfect peace. It says that before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds real good to me. Doesn't it seem that moments of peace are very hard to come by? I don't know about you, but I think that the, most, the thing that we lack most as a people in these days is just peace and quiet. Times to just relax and calm down. It seems that they're always just a little bit outside of our grasp. You know, we live in in an environment of constant noise and traffic and cell phones and, you know, phone calls and responsibility and entertainment and radios while we're driving and schedules and planning and shifting things around to try to make everything work and, you know, squeezing things in and trying to do 25 hours worth of stuff in 24 hours, you know, and then find time to sleep on top of that. And and it just compounds and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. You know, we went through, and you know, everybody goes through these things, but we went through this uh, season recently where, uh, you know, first there was uh, a, the, the rear spring on the car broke, you know. So, you know, I go and get the parts. I'm not paying nobody to touch it, so I'll do it myself, you know. And, and so I fixed the spring in the back of the car, you know. And then no sooner do I finish it, I think I did that on a Thursday, I came home on a Friday and Georgia said, hey, you know how the washing machine usually sounds like this? Well, it ain't doing that right now. You know, and, uh, you know, there was a piece of fabric that got sucked into the drain. So I had to take apart the washing machine and rip the fabric out of the drain, slice my hand open, you know. And then, and then the next day, Saturday, I was putting up the garage door and the garage door opener just fell right, right down, right out of the thing, you know. And, it, and, you know, thankfully there was no car there, you know, no big deal. But I'm like pushing the button, like, why isn't the thing working, you know, and the garage door opener's on the ground in the garage, you know. And then the next day, you know, the muffler had to be changed on the car. And it was just one thing after the next, after the next, after the next. And you just want to rip your hair out, you know. And life is like that, isn't it? It just, it's incredibly busy. It's insane. It's ceaseless. But there's a moment coming when a sea of glass, clear as crystal, a 
perfect peace as the one who's in control and holds all things in his hands is seated upon his throne. And there we are with him to ever be with the Lord, to enter into the rest that he promised when he said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for you will find rest for your souls. And that rest that we've been craving, that we've tasted, that we so long for, and that moment as we're there, it will all be worth it. Paul said to the Roman church, he said, For I perceive that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed. And as we sit before him, that crystal sea, it will all be worth it. The peace that we'll experience. Well, the fourth thing that we'll experience there as we live before the Lord for all of eternity as we're there after the rapture, is that our perspective will be expanded. I don't know about you, but I have a strong tendency to put God in a box. I make him very much like me. If I have a limitation, I'm quick to associate that limitation and put it upon God as well. If I think something is a certain way, then I think that must be the way God thinks about that too. One of the things I love about being Christian is when the Lord just blows our perspectives away. When he shows us that he's not bound by our little boxes or maybe even our little doctrinal beliefs of how we think things work. And he just explodes those things in front of us and shows us how big he is, how grand, how outside of anything that we can comprehend he in fact is. Look at verse 6 again. After the sea of glass, it says, In the midst of the throne and round about the throne, there were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Now, you know, when I say beast, I know you're thinking like a grizzly bear or something like that, but really it's a living creature. It's something where John looks at it and he doesn't know what to call it. I can't say it's like a bear. I can't say it's a beast. It's a creature. It's a thing. It's alive. You know, there's a living thing and there's four of them and they're in the throne. They're a part of this whole thing. I've never seen anything like it. You know, I've often thought, how many of you are familiar with that passage where Paul, it's in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12 and Paul talks about how he was caught up to the third heavens. You know, and, and he literally, he doesn't, he doesn't know if he was dead or if he was alive and in a trance. He doesn't know if it was a vision. He tells us, I don't know what, who, what happened. All I know is I was in heaven. And then he said, it's unlawful. I can't say it. It's unutterable. It's not unlawful in the terms of that it's illegal. He's saying, there's no words. I cannot put into the English language, or it wasn't in English, you know, into... Uh, the Greek language, the things that I saw, because there are no words to describe it. It was so outside of anything I've ever understood or comprehended before. But John, who was a mystic, he says, I'm going to try. And here he says, there was these four living creatures full of eyes before and behind and front and in back. And it says that the first beast or first creature was like a lion and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. It's incredible, isn't it? Now, these are... 
angels in some way. In, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees these creatures, these living creatures. And, and he calls them seraphim, which is a, you know, some kind of a, a ranking or a, you know, a position of angels there in heaven. And he describes them, you know, different from John. He couldn't see their bodies. He couldn't see their faces. He says that they each had six wings. And that with two of their wings, they covered their faces. With two of the wings, they covered their bodies. And with two of the wings, they flew. And he says the same thing that what they shouted, holy, holy, holy. And when they shouted, the glory of God filled the temple in heaven. That the pillars shook and the house was filled with smoke. Just this incredibly glorious scene as the seraphim shouted their cry. But it also represents the cherubim as well. Because in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel describes what he saw, and he describes other facets of the beasts that John sees and describes here. You know, and that would be, uh, you know, the faces, that of a lion, and that of a calf, and that of a man, uh, and that of an eagle. So this represents in some way the host of the angels. Now, I don't know about you, but I always grow up, you know, thought growing up, the angels were like these white clothed, uh, blonde haired ladies with little halos on their head, you know, and a couple of wings and they have a wand and they come around and they just bless people, you know. And that was kind of like my perceptive of angels. But listen, let me tell you something. When you get to heaven and you see these things, your perspective, your box that you've been putting God's things in is going to, you know, explode. C.S. Lewis, you know, you read the Chronicles of Narnia? He didn't have a clue. Tolkien, you know, some people like to say that his writings, uh, you know, had a Christian bent on them, you know, in some way. He didn't have a clue what he was talking about when he wrote these things. You know, uh, Andy Warhol, the guy who comes up with the weirdest things, or any of these abstract artists. Listen to what the Bible says. The Bible says, and it's 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. It says that I has not seen... Ear has not heard, and neither has it even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. That that means that no mind, no matter how weird, strange, out there, you know, mystical, nobody has ever even begun to comprehend the things that we will see when we are in glory. The things that God has created. The incredible splendor and beauty of these more than two eyes. Eyes before and behind. The face of a calf. The face of a lion. The face of a man. The face of an eagle. What are these things? What does it represent? What does it mean? You know, somebody pointed out at one time that, you know, these four faces, that they in some way reflect upon the four Gospels. That in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus was put forth as the lion of the tribe of Judah. A very Jewish and Hebrew perspective on Matthew's gospel. That's why it says so many times it is written in the ancient scriptures as it is written. Mark's gospel shows Christ as the servant. It's written to the Romans. The face of the ox or the calf being the beast of burden, the one who serves. Someone said that Luke, well in Luke, Luke's gospel, Jesus calls himself continually the son of man. He presents himself as the son of man, the face of a man. And John's gospel has a completely different perspective. Only a fraction of the miracles in a totally different perspective. A heavenly perspective, if you would, as though it were that of an eagle. And some have pointed out and shown that, you know, Jesus is kind of portrayed and seen in the faces of these beasts. And we have no idea. All we do know is this. 
that the things that we're going to see and the understanding that we're going to have of who he is and the glory and the power and the majesty and the size of this God that we have barely even scratched the surface of, it is going to blow our minds as we are there. How do we know this? Well, look with me again at verse 9. It says that when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. An expanded perspective always, be it in heaven then or be it on earth now, always translates into passionate praise. And that's number five if you're taking notes. An expanded perspective, when God explodes our box, if you would, that we put him in and try to formulate and figure out how God operates and who he is and we we've got him kind of wired if you would well when God blows that box open the result is always passionate praise it happens every time in Matthew chapter 6 I'm sorry Mark chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 14 you know it's the same story two different perspectives on the same account it tells us there that After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus put his disciples in the boat and he said, go to the other side. And as they were there, the winds began to stir up the sea. And it says that they toiled in the boat because the storm was so ferocious, so much so that they were taking on water and they thought they were going to perish. And the Bible says that late in the night, early in the morning, Jesus came walking out to them on the sea. And, And Mark's gospel just says that they told him to come in the boat. Matthew's gospel says Peter piped up and said, hey, can I come out too, you know? And, and you, you, know, you know the story. But ultimately, it says that Jesus spoke to the wind and the waves, and he said, be still. And that storm that had these fishermen, experienced sailors, if you would, fearing for their lives that they weren't going to make it to the other side, found themselves in that moment on that crystal clear, calm sea, As Jesus spoke the words and said, peace, be still. And it tells us there, in fact, Mark tells us that they marveled, they wondered beyond measure. That at that moment, their perspective was exploded. Matthew tells us that they said amongst themselves, who is this man that has power even over the wind and over the seas? They thought they had Jesus figured out. They thought they knew what he could do, that they had seen it. Okay, he does the bread trick, he does the wine trick, he does the healing trick, you know, he does all this. But when he stopped the wind and the waves, it tells us that they wondered beyond measure. And Matthew tells us that they worshipped him. Worship is always the response of having our perspectives exploded by the grandeur and greatness of God. Peter, it tells us, was out fishing. He had all of his resources, all of his powers, all of his strategies being employed. His best lures, his best tricks. And all night long, he caught nothing. 
And then early in the morning, as they had packed it in and were heading for shore, it says that Jesus saw them from the shore and he said, did you catch anything? They said, no. And he said, hey, you know what? Throw the net out on the other side of the boat. We're experienced fishermen. We know how these things work. They're just not there today. We've already folded up the nets. We've taken... All right. Lord, we'll do it. And so he took the net. Jesus said, throw the nets, plural. He took the net, singular. And he says, okay. Throws the net over. Pulls the net up. So great was the multitude of fish in that net that it says that the net broke. He should have obeyed. They had to call over the other boat to come and carry these fish because the weight of it was too heavy for one boat to just carry and haul it into shore. And it says that when Peter saw it and he understood that it was Jesus, his response, he fell on his knees and he said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. His perspective of what he thought was possible with God was completely obliterated. And the response was that he worshipped, he fell in awe before the Lord. And here we see these 24 elders there in heaven. They've already seen him face to face. They've received from him rewards and positions and crowns. And here as they see and hear these beasts proclaim this exclamation of praise. And no doubt seeing the smoke that Isaiah saw and the shaking of the pillars in the temple. It says that they're overwhelmed by the grandeur, the greatness of God. And that they drop to their knees. They take the crowns off off their head realizing that it's all his. He's the one that's done this. I didn't earn this crown. I'm not worthy to wear this. I'm nothing. I'm I'm the least of nothing. And before him, they cast those crowns and declare that he alone is the one who's worthy. That he's the one that created all things. Not me. It's not my idea, my ingenuity, my strategy, my craftiness. It's you, Lord. You are the first and the last. By your hand, all things are and were created. It has nothing to do with me at all. As they're overwhelmed and they cast their crowns before the Lord. Passionate praise is always the response of an expanded perspective. Now these are the things that are going to take place after the rapture. We'll be called up and we will give a personal account for the things that we did. The time that we had. We will then have positions received based upon our faithfulness. That will represent our capacity and our ability to enjoy and to operate within heaven's boundaries, whatever they may be. We'll experience the perfect peace that we so hunger for and long for and deeply desire here in this time on earth. It will be ushered in as we're before him. And there will be passionate praise that comes from us as we understand who he is and what he's done these things are going to happen you can make the checklist in your mind you can say rapture and then you can know absolutely what's going to happen after the rapture but as we close and i told you that i would kind of explain these things and then i would apply it at the end you don't have to wait until you get to heaven to be prepared for those things to happen You can begin now. What do you mean? Here's what I mean. You can begin right now to give a personal account for your life before the Lord. 
You don't have to wait until you're there before the throne and, and, and then answer for things or give account to those things. But you can do it right now. In fact, the Bible encourages you to do so. Paul, again, writing to the Corinthians, and, and he was writing about communion. He was explaining to them what's taking place when the church gathers together and takes communion together. He was describing to them the body and the blood of the Lord and what it means and what it represents to the Christian that we do this so often in this way. And he tells them to take an account, if you would. 1 Corinthians 11.31, he says that if we would judge ourselves, we will not be judged of the Lord. If we would judge ourselves, we will not be judged of the Lord. And we have the privilege and the opportunity to Make an assessment now of how we're doing. And to answer for those things now before the Lord in a way that he can wash us and maybe correct us and steer us in the right direction so that when we stand before him, our account is better because we're, you know, doing what we're supposed to be doing or we're fruitful with our lives. Uh, Communion is a great time. Do you know that? It's a great time to take account. When you think about it, as you hold the cup, the cup that represents the blood of Christ that washes away all of our sin, and to hold that cup and to be mindful of the fact that you have received this cup, but in exchange you had to give one away. That you got his cup, but he took yours. Remember, Jesus said, remember, he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to drink that one. Do you know whose cup that was? That was yours and mine. He took our cup. The cup was the wrath of God that was poured out on him as he hung upon the cross. And in place of that, he extends to us his cup, the cup of life. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. It's shed for you so that you can have eternal life. And there's an exchanging of cups that happens at the communion time. And communion is a great time to take account. To say, Lord, you know, I'm here and I'm receiving perfection. I'm receiving grace. I'm receiving forgiveness. I'm receiving life. What am I giving you? And to sit and think for a moment. To take into account and say, am I really living for you? Am I really committed to you? Am I really serving you with with my strength? Do I love you with all my heart, my mind and strength? Do I give heed to the commands that you give us in the word of God? Am I mindful of those things? And to take account for it. If we judge ourselves, the Bible says we shall not be judged of the Lord. And it's a great opportunity for him to make those adjustments in our lives. So that at that time when we give account, it will be better for us then. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 says that if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't mean you confess them to a man. It means you confess them to God. And as you confess, he cleanses and forgives every time. Psalm chapter 139 verses 23 and 24. David says these words and they're such great words. He says, search me, O God, and try my heart. Search me, know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Interesting, isn't it, to think about? He says three things. He says, search me, 
That means reveal to me what's really going on inside of me. Know me. Try me. Then he says, steer me in the way that I'm supposed to go. Search me, know me, see me, steer me. And you know what? The Bible says that he will. That if we bring our hearts before him in honesty, that he will make those adjustments and he will reveal things to us. And that can be a a scary thing sometimes, but it's so refreshing. As we ask the Lord to search our hearts and he begins to reveal areas of the self-life. He begins to uncover, you know, kind of lift the hood off of everything. And he shows us a little bit of how selfish we really are. How much we really live for ourselves and think about ourselves. He begins to reveal the attitudes that we have. And he judges them there as he shows us that, hey, that attitude is purely and absolutely self. The self-life magnified. He shows us the resentment that we have maybe towards others or towards some circumstances that we uh, faced during a, a certain encounter or something. And there's resentment and bitterness within our hearts. And he shows us it's the self-life. It's contrary to my, the life of Christ reviving you and abiding within you. He reveals irritability that exists within us. That he wants to wash away. He shows us it's the self-life. Envy. A critical spirit. Worry. The hard unyieldedness that we can so often have as we demand our way and our rights. It's all the self-life that he so longs to nail to the cross that we might know his life and have his perfection abiding within us. He reveals shyness and self-consciousness. Our unwillingness to admit that we're wrong. Our unwillingness to give up our own way. He begins to reveal these things that sometimes we don't even think of as sin. But yet they are absolute hindrances to what he wants to do within our lives. It's just the self-life living within us. And when we yield those things to him, when we say search me and we're open to him revealing those things and working those things out of us. It means that more of the life of Christ can abide within us. And the result of more of Christ living within us is that we're fruitful, right? John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. If I abide in you and you in me, you will bear much fruit. And the more we allow the Lord to search us and to root out of us that deep-rooted selfishness, And the attitudes of the life, the more of Christ's life he can pour in, and then therefore the more fruit that we'll produce, and the better our reward will be. Amen? We don't have to wait. As far as our position is concerned, the capacity that we'll have as we are given those crowns and awarded those places, those cities, if you would, listen, the investments that we make in heaven now while we are on earth, Those are the things that are going to translate into the rewards that we have then. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus spoke these words. He said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, And where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus said that we're to store up treasures in heaven. Not to lay them up for ourselves on earth. 
but rather to send it ahead. Because that's where the treasure, that's where it's going to translate into something that lasts. Something that's perfect. Something that's real and enduring. You say, well, Nick, are you suggesting in some way, you know, if, if we were to suffer loss, you know, at this uh, Bema Seat judgment, or, you know, if we don't maybe get that great of a position, you know, I mean, what if, if I have to work construction in heaven, I'm going to be really upset, you know, I, I, I and, and, you know, those two words just don't sound right together, you know, construction in heaven, or upset and heaven you know those heaven is heaven it's it's perfect you know and and you're saying suffer loss you know it, how can someone who suffers loss be happy in heaven i, I mean right that, doesn't it stand to reason that isn't everyone supposed to be happy in heaven well, well, well what what does that mean how, how does that work what gives in that listen it's true that everyone in heaven will be happy Everyone in heaven will be absolutely happy to their fullest capacity. There will be no happiness lacking whatsoever in any person in heaven. The person who is saved so as by fire and the person who's seated on one of those 24 thrones. All of them will be absolutely happy to their fullest capacity. The difference will be some of those people will have the capacity of a communion cup And some of them will have the capacity of a water silo. Do you understand the difference? They're both full. They both can't contain any more. They're both completely satiated. The difference is in their capacity in what they can hold. We understand that on earth. I have a six-year-old. And man, she is content. She is full when she is there sitting on the couch with her, you know, uh, American girl doll and she's brushing the hair and singing to the doll and changing, you know, the outfits. And, and she is, she is absolutely full to absolute capacity, enjoying all that she has. But for me, I sit there and I braid the hair. I don't do that really. I'm I'm just sounding like a good dad. I'm not really a good dad, you know. I would change the outfit. And something inside would be saying, you know, there's more. There's more to life than changing this outfit and braiding this hair. Why? Because I have a greater capacity. I have a greater capacity and and ability to enjoy finer things in life. Like sweeping. Washing dishes. Right, honey? You know, all these things I love to do, you know, that my kid just can't understand. They look at me and, you know, hey, whatever, and they go back to doing what they're going to do. But listen, in heaven, the Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 41, Paul talking about the resurrection and the type of bodies and how all that's going to work in heaven. He says this phrase. He says that one star differs from another star in glory. And there is going to be different capacities, different responsibilities, differences in the citizens of heaven. And some will have a greater capacity than others. Everyone is full. But there will be a difference. The Bible teaches that absolutely. The point? Listen, don't waste your time on earth. Don't waste your resources. Don't waste the opportunities that God has given you to lay up treasures in heaven. Because those investments will last for eternity. 
the energy, the effort, the expenditures that you make on terrestrial things will dissolve and fade. Did you see the waves pulling the cars and bobbing them up and down like fishing bobbers in the car? That was someone's treasure at some point. Did you see the house get hit and within seconds it was a pile of toothpicks? It's the destiny of everything on this planet, all of it. And yet there is a treasure that is enduring, that lasts, that never fades. And Jesus is exhorting us. He's saying, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt. Thieves don't break through and steal. These things will never fade away. We have that privilege and that opportunity to store it up in eternal things. Listen, 26 times, and this is only counting in the concordance in the back of my Bible, which is very limited. 26 times I counted that the Bible promises to the believer. Oh, we're way over time. That's okay, because what I'm going to say, you have eternal life. Listen, you have eternal life. That means that if you have put your faith in Christ, you are not going to die. Jesus said that he that liveth and believeth in me shall not die, but have everlasting life. You have eternal life. That means... You do not have to say, I only have 30 years left to get the mansion and the boat and the Porsche and the, you know, the house in the hills. And listen, no, no, no. You have, you are eternal. You have eternal life. That means you can bear with what you're dealing with here and now because this is a breath. It's gone. It's a vapor. But for the next billion years, you will be assigned a position and a capacity in the heavenlies that will never fade, that will never grow old. And the Bible says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't live for the temporary. Don't place your investments and your emphasis on the here and now. We're we're, we're way out of time. I'm sorry, I just can't finish this. But... uh, I'll tell you what the last things are. You know, the perfect peace. I will steer you and say, read Psalm 46. Psalm 40, it's one of the most powerful Psalms in the whole book of Psalms. It talks about how, you know, that at the same time, you have this raging world. Things tossed to and fro, confusion and chaos. But at the same time of all this confusion and chaos that we experience on earth, the Bible says that there is a river. The streams thereof make glad the cities of God. That she shall not be moved. That God will help her in that right early. That at the same time that you are experiencing the chaos of life, that there is a perfect peace in the presence of the Lord. And we have access to Him. And therefore, no matter how chaotic life can be, we can experience the peace of Christ if we would just take the time to sit still before Him and know Him as God. And do you know what that will turn into? Passionate praise. Because as Christ is revealed, as Jesus becomes alive to us, not a concept or a verse or a future, but a now and a God who's real and a God who's big. The result of that will, will be worship. We'll want to praise him just like these elders bow down before him. Our perception of his closeness, his nearness, his presence, his reality will be exploded. 
before us. And it will drive us to our knees to lift our hands regardless of what people are going to think about how weird we are for lifting our hands in church and singing, shouting to the Lord, praising Him for His goodness. You don't have to wait. But when we ask the question, are you ready for the rapture? Don't let it just be, are you ready to get the heck out of here? But ask yourself, are you ready to give an account? Are you ready to receive that position? Yeah, I've stored it up. I'm ready. Ready to hit that retirement button for heaven, you know. Will you be found of him in peace? And is your heart overwhelmed with his splendor and his goodness? Because all of that is wrapped up in that question, are you ready for the rapture? Let's pray. Father, we... Just thank you tonight for your word, for uh, just what you've revealed. As we read the book of Revelation, Lord, we find so much is shown to us. And we thank you, Lord, that we have this exhortation tonight, that as we feel the, the labor pains and, uh, and see the signs of the times happening daily uh, with more frequency, with greater intensity, that we know that you're coming soon. And I pray for myself and for each person here, for for this church, Lord, that we would be a people that are prepared. That we wouldn't just take it as, hey, we're getting out of here. But that we would see the big picture. And you would help us to understand the severity and the cost. We pray that you would show us tonight what it means to have eternal life. To be blood-bought, called by your name. Sanctified and set apart. The privilege that we have to have access to you that you hear our prayer. I pray that you'd free us from the self-life, from the bitter bondage of living for self, letting those attitudes and tendencies come out and live. God, give us the grace to surrender all to you. Give us wisdom, Lord. I pray that you would Meet with each one of us, maybe even while we sing this last song, that you would search us. That you'd show us, Lord, where we're missing the mark, where we could be more fruitful, where our perspective has become wrong. And that you'd steer us in the way that we should go. Again, Lord, we thank you for this time. I pray that we'd leave here changed tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.